Hello, and welcome to Further Up and Further In, a podcast. This is now episode 33 of the podcast, in which we will examine chapter 11 of Prince Caspian, titled The Lion Roars. And this chapter meets us in the middle of this ongoing drama with Lucy Pevensey, the youngest of the siblings, wherein she has visions of Aslan. She's had these uh, rather magical and mysterious experiences in Narnia where she sees glimpses of Aslan. Here's his beckoning call. She sees the trees dancing and swaying. Uh, these uh, extraordinarily striking and transcendent invitations uh, from the landscape around her and from the king of Narnia himself, from Aslan. And yet she feels the weight of uh, having to beckon her siblings to follow her despite their inability to see him. And, and this is such a weighted uh, episode in the Narnia series. And it's one that really... Uh, elevates the anguish and the difficulty and the complexity that these uh, children are experiencing in Narnia. Devin Brown in his commentaries on Narnia talks about how Prince Caspian is an elevation or an advancement of the moral responsibility that these children face than they did in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, Aslan has less screen time in, uh, the, in Prince Caspian than he did in the first book. Uh, he leaves much more to their responsibility and to their um, their will and their power of choice. Uh, he, of course, is still sovereign over Narnia. But uh, here we see Lucy put into a position of trust and authority. And in so doing, she puts her siblings in a similar position of having to trust. Uh, having to trust especially beyond the capacity of their senses. And that's where we find ourselves at the beginning of chapter 11, where Lucy is waking her siblings up and uh, beckoning them to follow her as she follows Aslan to find a way to Caspian without getting lost or without facing extraordinary dangers like they have. The chapter starts saying this, when the whole party was finally awake, Lucy had to tell her story for the fourth time. The blank silence which followed it was as discouraging as anything could be. I can't see anything, said Peter, after he had stared his eyes sore. Can you, Susan? No, of course I can't, snapped Susan, because there isn't anything to see. She's been dreaming. Do lie down and go to sleep, Lucy. And I do hope, said Lucy, in a tremulous voice, that you will all come with me, because, because I'll have to go with him whether anyone else does or not. There's a very powerful opening. Uh, first of all, we have um, the age-old question of believing, uh, of knowledge coming by sensory experience. This is the famous cliche um, that seeing is believing. Uh, and this has, has a deep background in, in philosophical thought. I, I think directly of John Locke and David Hume and some other philosophers who were concerned with the nature of empirical knowledge, of empiricism, which is the, the belief that knowledge is gained by experience. Uh, this is the realm of epistemology and philosophy that, that seeks to study how we know what we know. And uh, Locke and Hume and others seemed to be of the mind that perception and experience is the means by which we know anything. 
Here, though, uh, that belief is tested and stretched where Peter and Susan are unable to see anything and therefore are tempted to conclude there isn't anything there. That's, again, seeing is believing, right? And so if we can't see it, if we can't touch it or taste it or hear it, it's obviously not there. And Lucy represents a different epistemology altogether, a different ethic that might even be flipped around to say that believing is seeing, that believing is seeing. Perhaps the belief, the trust of the revelation of God is what equips us to see rather than the Lockean or the Humean uh, view that uh, seeing is believing, that experience brings knowledge. Uh, This puts me in mind of uh, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians about um, how uh, those who look at the scriptures without uh, the work of the Holy Spirit are blinded. Um, This is 2 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 14, Paul says, Their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, i.e. when one believes, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So in this passage, Paul seems to suggest that there is a veil that is impeding our vision or restricting our uh, ability to see the truth until there is a belief in Christ. Only through Christ and his work is this veil taken away. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. 2 Corinthians 3.16. Paul also suggests this in 2 Corinthians 4. Uh, Verse 6, a very famous passage, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. So it seems in these passages and others in the New Testament that our epistemology, our knowledge of what is true and what is real, is dependent on the work of God, is dependent on faith. Uh, We walk by faith and not by sight, it says. So back to Narnia, the fact that Peter says he can't see anything and Susan says because there isn't anything to see seems to be this secular worldview that is probably more in keeping with King Miraz than it is with Aslan. Uh, And we don't fault them for this. Peter even seems to indicate a willingness to believe. He says, I can't see anything, said Peter after he had stared his eyes sore. Susan seems less willing to believe, but it all uh, culminates in this declaration from Lucy where she says, I do hope that you will all come with me, implied regardless of the fact that they can't see him for themselves. She hopes that they'll follow her as she follows Aslan, just as Paul uh, advises us to follow him as he follows Christ. But she says, I hope you all come with, you will all come with me because I'll have to go with him whether anyone else does or not. And here we see Lucy's moral courage uh, at its perhaps finest point in the novel so far that uh, it reminds me of that song, uh, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus, 
no turning back, no turning back. The, the second verse or so, though none go with me, I still will follow. No turning back. The, there's this beautiful resolution in Lucy. And of course, the irony is she's the youngest of them. But even in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we saw uh, Lewis flip that hierarchy on its head. That It's the eyes of a child. It's the availability of wonder. It's the willingness to believe. It's the strength of one's faith, not one's sight, that leads to the truth. And in this way, Lewis uh, opens this uh, very extraordinary chapter up with a very extraordinary truth, which is that perhaps believing is seeing, that we must have our eyes trained by faith, not by the physical limitations of our sight. Uh, even when I don't see it, he's working. The, the song Waymaker says that even when I don't see it, you're working. Just because I can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. I remember Doug Wilson giving an analogy of this, that a blind man doesn't negate the existence of the sun and a deaf man doesn't negate the existence of Mozart. Just because I can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. The limitation is on me as a finite creature whose perceptions and senses are all limited. How many times have you and I been misled by our senses? We, we could swear we heard something in the distance. We thought we saw something that was there when it wasn't. Uh, we have mirages and hallucinations. Our senses do not have as firm a grip on reality as we like to, as we like to believe. And so this chapter reminds us that Aslan and the transcendent, the metaphysical, the, the supernatural and miraculous uh, notions of truth will often astound and mesmerize and uh, lie beyond our physical perceptions. And thus, faith is the means by which we see and live. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, not my eyes. Um, and anyway, so Lucy's resolve is that she goes. Finally, uh, the others very hesitantly and reluctantly commit to go with her. Edmund even growls. He says, oh, come on, we've got to go. There will be no peace till we do. And Edmund, even now, who has learned somewhat a lesson from the first book, believes that Lucy's been right before. So perhaps she's right now that she sees Aslan when others don't. But they all reluctantly decide to go. And this puts me in mind of Lewis's own conversion in Surprised by Joy. Lewis chronicles his journey from unbelief to belief. And he famously describes it uh, as this <laughs> reluctant, um, hesitant affair that he says that he was dragged into the Christian faith, kicking and screaming. He was the most reluctant convert in all of England, he says. And here we see this reluctance to follow Lucy in her siblings. And yet it's honored with visions of Aslan that, that uh, sibling by sibling, they're all eventually given the gift of sight, the gift of faith that they see Aslan once and for all. But it doesn't come safely. It comes at great peril. As they follow Lucy, Lucy keeps her eyes fixed on Aslan. Lewis says she forgot them all when she fixed her eyes on Aslan. He turned and walked at a slow pace about 30 yards ahead of them. The others had only Lucy's directions to guide them. So they're following Lucy by faith. It's a reluctant faith. It is a dented and imperfect faith. It's a faith 
that is attendant with growlings and murmurings, but it is a faith, faith like a mustard seed. They follow Lucy as Lucy follows Aslan. And it says this, he led them to the right of the dancing trees. Whether they were still dancing, nobody knew, for Lucy had her eyes on the lion and the rest had their eyes on Lucy and nearer the edge of the gorge. In the following paragraph, uh, the narrator describes just how risky and dangerous this faith is, that though this faith is perhaps small and limited, it still has to be strong enough to withstand the dangers that lie all around them. Aslan went along the top of the precipices, it says, quote, right on the edge, uh, quote, Lucy, she was too busy keeping him in sight to stop and think about this. A steep and narrow path going slantwise down into the gorge between rocks. Uh, so this is an arduous and, and demanding faith for these siblings to follow Lucy, not through primroses and not through meadows and fields of glory, but to follow him along rocks and gorges and edges. Until finally, piece by piece, Aslan reveals himself to Edmund and to Peter, and then finally to Susan and Trumpkin. Edmund says this, look, what's that shadow crawling down in front of us? It's his shadow, said Lucy. I do believe you're right, Lou, said Edmund. I can't think how I didn't see it before. But where is he? With his shadow, of course. Can't you see him? Well, I almost thought I did for a moment. It's such rum light. And there's so much loaded in this interaction between Lucy and Edmund. It's just beautiful. First of all, the fact that Edmund sees Aslan in pieces. He sees Aslan bit by bit, that these are glimpses of glory that Edmund is afforded. And I think this is in keeping with scripture. This In uh, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, now we see through a glass darkly, then we will see face to face. Uh, that I, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. So there is this step-by-step -step process by which we experience the trials of life and that those trials afford us these, these glimpses and shadows. Remember, Lucy says that Aslan is with his shadow. And so Edmund sees the shadow of the lion, but doesn't see the lion. And he's wondering what that is. What's that shadow crawling down in front of us in the midst of this cliff and the rocks and the gorge? And Lucy says, why, that's Aslan. And so that, there's a great um, truth there that often we must take the path of, that is given to us when we don't see God at all, when we don't see Aslan at all. But we also must take the path that's put in front of us when all we see is the shadow when all we see is the glimpse, all we see is the, the dark or the, the danger. And it's Lucy who's much closer to the vision of Aslan in virtue of her wonder and her faith says, of course, where is Aslan? All I see is shadow. Aslan is with his shadow. There is no shadow of Aslan without Aslan himself. I think that's true for us that there are no shadows without the sunlight. And there's a famous song by Switchfoot that is titled, The Shadow Proves the Sunshine. That, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. There is no shadow without the sun, S-U-N and S-O-N. And I think here we have, we have that exact same uh, 
truth at work. Edmund receives these glimpses of glory in an essay of his, Lewis, uh, titled Meditation in a Tool Shed. Lewis describes a man walking into a tool shed where there is a chink in the beams of wood in the rafters through which a beam of sunlight falls. And he meditates on this beam of sunlight in this essay. Uh, and eventually he says, looking at a beam of a beam of light is one experience, but standing underneath it and looking along a beam of light is a different experience altogether. He says, looking at the sunbeam provides one set of, of experiences or uh, one particular perspective where you see the motes of dust fluttering in and out. But he says, once you stand in the beam of light and look up, you're afforded a vision of the sky through the chink in the ceiling that you, you follow the sunbeam back to the sun. Uh, this is called a coruscation of glory where you, you follow the beam of light back to its source rather than standing outside of it looking at it, you're standing inside of it, looking along it. And I think for Edmund, he's starting to look along the shadow. He's starting to look along the dangers in glimpses until he's afforded a vision of the whole, until he's given a full revelation of Aslan. And I think um, the way in which it works out for Edmund is so relevant to my experience and maybe to yours as well, where he said he asks what the shadow is, Lucy says it's his shadow, and Edmund says, I do believe you're right. I can't think how I didn't see it before. I think this is so true of all of us. Once we see Aslan, once we see Christ, we look back at our journey and say, of course, how could I not have seen that before? This, this same uh, idea is at work at the end of the screw tape letters. Uh, it, at the end of the screw tape letters, um, the main character dies and is ushered into heaven. Screw tape and wormwood lose their patient to the powers of God. And the, the patient, the man, arrives in heaven. And there's this beautiful uh, perspective Lewis has where the man, rather than being struck at the, the glory of heaven as though it's unfamiliar, rather the man says, oh, of course, this is how it always had to be. There's a recognition of it where now that he's afforded the full view, he's able to say, oh, why didn't I, why didn't I know this? Why didn't I see this before? This looks like every single glimpse of glory I've seen in my life, all put together like a glorious puzzle. This is the thing I was always loving. This is the thing that I was always wanting. I only saw it in part or I only saw it in glimpses. This is, again, in Surprised by Joy, this is something Lewis talks about where joy, capital J, the longing, the sinsucht, he calls it, the, the great desire of our souls is something that stabs into us. It's, it crashes into our heart and glimpses now. In this life, we catch it in peace, but then we will see, as Paul says, face to face. Now we see through a glass darkly. Peter echoes the same thing a couple paragraphs later, where he says, I saw something, but it's so tricky in this moonlight. And I say, yes, amen. In this light, in, in this experience with the rocks and the cliffs and the gorge and the moonlight, it's hard to know in full. We think we see glimpses, but then when Aslan reveals himself fully, we will see completely. But again, the revelation of Aslan, uh, the glimpses leading to the full vision are not 
safe. Remember what um, is said in the line, the witch in the wardrobe from Mr. Beaver. Aslan is not safe. He's not a tame lion at all. And in this uh, vision of Aslan, when they all see him, there is this great path of suffering that they all must take in following him. Watch how Lewis describes this. Lucy was nearly blown when the tail and hind legs of Aslan disappeared over the top. But with one last effort, she scrambled after him and came out rather shaky-legged and breathless on the hill they had been trying to reach ever since they left Glasswater. The long, gentle slope, heather and grass, and a few very big rocks that shone white in the moonlight stretched up to where it vanished in a glimmer of trees about half a mile away. She knew it. It was the hill of the stone table. Notice this path. It's mentioned that it's a long, gentle slope, but that's the end of the journey. The beginning of the chapter, that part of the journey was fraught with difficulties. Of course, for Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Trumpkin, that they were following Lucy by faith, they weren't able to see Aslan. But even Lucy, who could see him, had to keep her eyes fixed on him. She had to keep her focus on Aslan and not on anything else because the whole path was treacherous and dangerous. And even here, it's a long stretch up. And with one last effort, Lewis says, she scrambled after him and came out rather shaky-legged and breathless. Uh, so this is the Via Dolorosa. This is the way of suffering that is described that mimics the path that Jesus took carrying the cross to Calvary. That this is the path that Aslan is demanding we take. It's a path that is difficult, a path that's filled with, with arduous walking. It's no accident that this is the hill that they're following Aslan on that leads to the stone table. That this, was, this is the hill of Calvary. This is Golgotha. This is the Via Dolorosa that Aslan had to walk in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe toward the atonement. And this is now the very same path that he is demanding that Lucy and Edmund and Susan and Peter and Trumpkin walk. And it's something that they have to walk by faith. Remember Pilgrim's Progress, that there is a way, a narrow way that is demanded that Pilgrim follow that leads to the celestial city. And most extraordinarily, after they reach the stone table, after they finally reach the summit, Lewis says, with a jingling of mail, the others climbed up behind her. Aslan glided on before them, and they walked after him. Notice how beautiful this sentence is and how loaded it is all the way down to the diction Lewis chooses with the verbs. Aslan glided on before them. How could he glide on? Because he's already taken this path. He's already gone before us. He didn't glide on before them in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when he went to the stone table to die. He has gone to the stone table, died upon it, cracked it in half, and resurrected. And so now as he follows this path, he glides on ahead of us. He has gone before us, but we must walk after him. Aslan glided on before them and they walked after him. This is a beautiful sentiment that uh, I heard someone express once in this image of Christ. What he's done is, is that Christ has gone through death ahead of us. And he now stands on the other side, resurrected, saying, come follow me. It's safe. He has defeated death. That we can walk through the doorway of death 
because Christ walked through it first and he's reaching out his hand to us. It, this reminds me of John 14. Um, in John 14, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, you know, the beginning of the chapter, let not your heart be troubled. But in verses three and four, he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. So Jesus says, I'm going to go ahead of you through the maw of death, and I'm going to die in your place, and I'm going to come out the other side victorious, crowned, seated at the right hand of the Father, and I will prepare a place for you and come again and take you to myself. Now, we must go through death as well. Right? The, the wages of sin is death. All sinners must die. But what Jesus does is he gives us the prospect of dying and resurrecting. If we die in Christ, we are raised in Christ. That where he is, we may be also. And Aslan is gliding ahead toward the stone table that he has already broken. And he is guiding the others toward that same stone table. It's this beautiful place. And it's at this place where Susan uh, and Peter both have these declarations of repentance. In six words, Susan encapsulates the very heart of repentance and salvation when she turns to Lucy and she says, I see him now. I'm sorry. And I, I don't know if there's a more lovely and more simple explanation or a, a declaration rather of what it means to encounter Christ where Susan is is Susan is in the presence of Aslan and the stone table broken for Edmund and for her for all of Narnia and she says I see him now I'm sorry and Lucy rather than lord it over her or or throw this I told you so party she says that's all right which is a similar sort of thing that said to Edmund in the first book when Edmund apologizes Peter later on says, Oh, Aslan, said King Peter, dropping on one knee and raising the lion's heavy paw to his face. I'm so glad and I'm so sorry. And Aslan responds, my dear son, this is beautiful. This is just beautiful. Where the pitch of the Christian conversion is one of gratitude and sorrow. Both Lucy and, I'm sorry, both Susan and Peter admit that they are sorry for what they did, that they relied too heavily on themselves. And yet, as Susan says, I see him now. And Peter says, I'm so glad that uh, we have been crucified with Christ. There is a death and a sorrow for the old man that we must experience, but that leads to joy, right? Because Jesus' death did the same, that there is a, there is a, present suffering, but there's a future joy that in Hebrews, it says for the joy that was set before him, Christ endured the cross. So there is a sorrow for sin that must be accounted for and must be felt and felt deeply, but it's for the joy that's set before. And Aslan welcomes Peter, my dear son, and then turns to Susan and gives her a sharper rebuke, but it's one that's no less beautiful. He turns to Susan and says, you have listened to fears, child. Now, notice he doesn't enumerate the fears. I think Devin Brown talks about this in his commentary on Prince Caspian. He doesn't spend time reminding Susan of all of the fears that she had, 
Remember Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so he says to Susan, you have listened to fears, child. Come, let me breathe on you. Forget them. Are you brave again? Susan says, a little Aslan. Now we'll we'll get into this more deeply when we read the last battle, but the whole problem of Susan that has become a, a topic of conversation for reading Narnia uh, is put uh, to work here. Where is Susan? Uh, um, does she fall away from the faith? Is she um, is she reprobate? Does she uh, does she not enter into the ultimate Narnia further up and further in? I, I have a lot of ideas about that. Where I think Susan is absolutely uh, going to be there in the final Caraparavel and the final Narnia. There are four thrones there. Um, but here, Aslan's breathing on Susan matters. Because remember, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it's the breath of Aslan that regenerates the petrified heart. Uh, it turns the statue into a real man. And so Aslan's breathing on Susan here needs to be meaningful. And so he breathes on her to rid her of her fears and then says, are you brave? And she says, a little. So for Susan, the breath of Aslan works differently, but it's working glimpse by glimpse, little by little. She's a little bit more brave now than she was once. And so for her, it's going to be a process of sanctification as it is for all of us. Following his interaction with Peter and Susan, you have a, a humorous <laughs> moment with Trumpkin uh, where Aslan uh, takes Trumpkin in his uh, in his jaws, tosses him in the air, rattles him up a bit, and then uh, says to him, son of earth, shall we be friends? Asked Aslan. And uh, the only word Trumpkin ever says to Aslan here is a rather stuttering version of the word yes, <laughs> for he had not got his breath back, Lewis says. And it's interesting to consider uh, the nature of Aslan's interaction with Trumpkin. It reminds me of a lot of the uh, theology of at work in Flannery O'Connor's fiction. If you've, if you're familiar with Flannery O'Connor, she's a tremendous uh, Catholic writer from from Georgia. Um, but there's this beautiful notion that she works with about dark grace or the the violence of grace that that jolts and startles a sinner out of his stupor and out of his selfishness in order to recognize his state, to recognize his despair and recognize his sin as the first step in the path of redemption. And that grace in her vision, and I think partly at work here with Trumpkin, grace is something that needs to shatter. Uh, and so although it's given some comedy in this moment, Aslan's shaking up of Trumpkin perhaps is the greatest act of grace because it will startle Trumpkin out of his disbelief. He has spent the whole book uh, disbelieving in Aslan and all of the, all of those fantasy stories. And so for Aslan to rattle him up a bit uh, is no violence at all. Uh, it is just the, the jolt that all sinners need to awaken them out of their stupor, out of their dizziness and back into a, a direct view of the truth. And then finally, uh, you have this beautiful romp that ends the chapter in between uh, the repentance of Peter and Susan and Trumpkin and the recognition of Aslan. Um, the trees start moving toward Aslan's howl. This is it's a Shakespearean influence, certainly. 
uh, from Macbeth, where, Bar- where Burnham Wood starts approaching Dunsinane. But at the end of the chapter here, uh, you have this glorious romp, which we've seen Christian revelry uh, at the heart of Narnia um, throughout. And, and that is a pervasive theme throughout all seven books, is this beautiful view of Christian revelry, uh, that Christ is the God of celebration, that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Um, and it's Satan and the, the powers of sin and darkness that are the cosmic killjoys. Remember the white witch when spring was breaking in Narnia and the winter was thawing and all of the animals are celebrating with a tea party, the witch descends upon it and says, what is the meaning of all this waste and indulgence? And the animals say, well, Father, Christmas has come. Tis the season of gift and rejoicing and merriment and laughter. And she she <laughs> turns them all to stone. She breaks the party in half. Uh, I, I won't read this particular passage. Um, it's a beautiful a description of this romp, um, with this revelry in Narnia that has all of these beautiful and compelling descriptions of rejoicing and of festivity and merriment. Um, Devin Brown even mentions how the games that are referenced, uh, he references Blind Man's Bluff, uh, Blind Man's Buff, Tag, Hunt the Slipper, and so on, that these are games that are played without opposing sides, that there are no winners and losers, that these are games that can be played innocently as it were, um, and beautifully. Uh, the, the, the end of the description, I'll just read a portion of it. It's, Lewis says, here there were more than anyone could possibly want and no table manners at all. <laughs> One saw sticky and stained fingers everywhere. It's kind of a, a portrait of anyone, the house of anyone who has small children. <laughs> One saw sticky and stained fingers everywhere. And though mouths were full, the laughter never ceased. So it's this beautiful portrait. Uh, and there's a great connection back to the line, the witch in the wardrobe that um, Lucy makes when she's talking to Susan. She says, I say, Sue, I know who they are. Uh, she points out these two figures that Lewis describes. Susan says, who? And Lucy says, the boy with the wild face is Bacchus, the Greek god of, uh, the Roman god of wine and revelry. The boy with the wild face is Bacchus, and the old one on the donkey is Silenus. Don't you remember Mr. Tumnus telling us about them long ago? I just want to return to that moment in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Listen to how Lewis describes this uh, conversation between Tumnus and Lucy when she first meets him. Lewis says this, he had wonderful tales to tell, this is Tumnus, of life in the forest. He told about the midnight dances and how the nymphs who lived in the wells and the dryads who lived in the trees came out to dance with the fawns, about long hunting parties after the milk-white stag who could give you wishes if you caught him, about feasting and treasure-seeking with the wild red dwarfs, which we've seen now with Trumpkin, in deep mines and caverns far beneath the forest floor and then about summer, when the woods were green and old Silenus on his fat donkey would come to visit them, and sometimes Bacchus himself, and then the streams would run with wine instead of water, and the whole forest would give itself up to jollification for weeks on end. So now what was a distant memory for Tumnus of a time before the White Witch's winter, and what was to Lucy this beautiful hope, is now a reality where Narnia is experiencing the water turning to wine and is experiencing Bacchus and Silenus. 
Doris Myers says this, Aslan uh, is on the side of freedom, celebration, and plenteousness, rather than uncomfortable Sunday clothes, long-faced piety, and self-denial. That's an important view of Aslan, that he's not this dour, gloomy, rigid figure at all, nor is he this figure of licentiousness. He's not this figure of anarchy. Keep in mind how the chapter closes. Susan says, I wouldn't have felt safe with Bacchus and all his wild girls if we'd met them without Aslan. And Lucy says, I should think not. So uh, this is not a defense of debauchery. It's not a defense of anarchy or chaos or a hollow revelry, but it's also not a depiction of Aslan as this uh, tight-lipped, sour, and melancholy figure that Aslan stands at the center of this Christ-centered revelry, this um, magical defense of, of what is true and beautiful. Lewis defends his overall view of myth as a real, though unfocused, gleam of divine truth falling on human imagination. So in Miracles, in that work, Lewis is saying that myth is not this uh, necessarily distracting or um, a deceiving uh, genre or deceiving um, element of culture, but rather the myth, it, myth refers to that which is real, though unfocused. I think that's a great description of myth. That's why we see Bacchus and Silenus and nymphs and dryads and uh, Father Christmas, all of these different sources, uh, which Tolkien couldn't stand that. Lewis says it's a real, though unfocused gleam of divine truth falling on the human imagination. Yeah, I think that's a helpful way of seeing what Lewis is after and one that we can um, attend to as well and rejoice in a Bacchus, a, a source of revelry and merriment and mirth that is governed by Aslan, a Bacchus that is ungoverned, uh, a Bacchus without Aslan, revelry without Christ is atrocious. So thank you for listening to this week's episode. Uh, Tune in next time as we look at chapter 12 of Prince Caspian titled Sorcery and Sudden Vengeance.